Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. We're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCabot. Library and Archives Canada, also referred to as LAC or LAC, combines the holdings of both the former National Library of Canada and the National Archives of Canada. Among other things, LAC is tasked with preserving heritage, offering accessible knowledge, and serving as the continuing memory of the Government of Canada. No small tasks. And there are a number of different services as well as locations across Canada that accomplish these goals. Today we'll be focusing on one service in particular, reference services. Reference services employ specialists, such as archivists and librarians, who can help you find answers to your research questions and assist you in using LAC's vast and complex collections and resources. They can help with all kinds of things, finding the right book for a school project, tracking down photographs or architectural plans, accident reports, delving into diaries and journals, and even tracing your own family tree, just to name a few. It's expressly part of Library and Archive Canada's mandate to acquire, preserve, and diffuse knowledge. Today, we have a special guest joining us from the Reference Services Division, Archivist Rebecca Murray. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So, Rebecca, what are the day-to-day operations like at Library and Archives Canada? Of course, it varies from day-to-day, but the basic work of the entire team, the archivists, the librarians, the reference technicians, and the genealogy consultants, revolves around the service that we provide to the public on-site. And so, of course, that's the first priority We have the reference desk, we have the telephone unit taking phone calls, genealogy desk, and the archivists and librarians are doing appointments on site with clients and also by telephone. The next, I would say, most pressing priority every day is to respond to written requests that we receive. So very similar to requests that we would get in person. And we're responding to those requests, usually on a first come, first serve basis, as efficiently and effectively as we can. They're triaged among the members of the team so that we can get to them in a good delay and that the people with the right knowledge and expertise can can treat the right questions. And your role in reference services, um, you're talking about tasks being triaged. Um, what are your particular responsibilities? Like, Do you have an area of specialty yourself? Um, of course, I have an area of interest that mm-hmm. I know I, w- I really enjoy certain types of questions. I enjoy delving into the history of my home province of Nova Scotia. So when things are about that, that's that always touches my heart. But I really enjoy learning about all aspects of our country's heritage and history, built or social or cultural. So anything that's triaged to me, I take it as a, a challenge. <laughs> Some are bigger challenges than others. And um, I just look forward to doing whatever's assigned or whatever's ongoing, of course. Can you give us some examples of things that have been triaged to you? Maybe recently, maybe more memorable ones? Definitely. Um, So one that I had actually triaged to myself from our bank of questions was a request from a client for footage of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police doing their famous musical ride 
um, in the 1950s. So this was very early days for the RCMP musical ride. We were unsure if it had actually been filmed where at a specific location on a specific day. And together with the details she was able to get from her family members who were participating in the ride and that I was able to match with what we have in our collection data, we were able to find the footage, get permission to have it reproduced and, and share it with the family. So that was very memorable because they were just so thankful to be able to not only see their, their grandparent in action, as it were, but also to share that with the family members. It must feel like almost like a treasure hunt. And then be super satisfying when you do find exactly what you're looking for. Certainly, of course, it can be very frustrating to not find what you're looking for. As you know, simple or straightforward as requests can seem, it's it's very disheartening to not find what you're looking for, um, especially when you feel like you've acquired the skills necessary to do this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Tips and tricks, but then and you still don't get the answer. But that's the nature of archival research and we maintain a great list of freelance researchers that we refer our clients to. And personally, I always offer to provide a copy of my work notes to the freelance researcher so they don't have to start from scratch. And you'd say clients, is this free for anyone who asks? Or is there like fees involved? Is there fees if you send them to an independent researcher? How's that aspect up to uh, the research work or to the process work? It's a very good question, and I should probably use the word researcher, but we use client and researcher uh, within our division. So it's free. So the you know if you submit a question to reference services, the work we do is free of charge. If you'd like to order a copy of something, there's a charge. If you'd like to come on site, of course, you'll have to pay to come and have your trip here, although being on site itself is free of charge. And to hire a freelance researcher is at whatever rate they've established. And I think that reference services plays a really unique role in being a liaison between the researchers and the rest of the institution. We help people interpret, you know, the what and the how. Um, I would say a big portion of my work is about procedure and how to do archival research and not specific to the content that the researchers are interested in. So you work at Reference Services now. How do you get started at LAC and have you always worked at the Reference Services Yes, I've always worked in reference services at Library and Archives Canada. I did do a stint as a casual employee at LAC when I was in grad school working as a records clerk, which was a really neat experience to get my hands on some World War II killed in action files. Mm. So those are really neat files if you ever have an opportunity to go through a container of them. They're really neat portraits of individuals who served. Just for people who might not be familiar, um, what kinds of documents or even in some cases objects does LAC preserve? LAC acquires and preserves the continuing memory of the government of Canada. So there's a lot of paper, right? right? A lot of textual <laughs> documents. I would say that is probably one of the single largest types of documentation that we have. Of course, we also acquire it through private fonds, fonds of individuals or organizations. Then, of course, photographs or, or imagery is very popular. And, of course, it's something that we acquire and it makes up a large portion of our holdings. And then there's architectural and technical drawings uh, for anything from buildings to ships and everything in between. We have maps and plans sound recordings, uh, other audiovisual material, art, philatelic documents such as stamps, and then of course all the supporting documentation about how stamps are created. And I mean, there's metals, there's pins, there's lots of different objects. 
And um, I mean, the list probably goes on, but those would be the main categories. Right. And when there's like such, you're covering a huge area, like the memory of the government of Canada, that's huge. So when things are kind of brought to LAC to be accessioned, how do things get selected or do things ever get turned away? And how often do things get turned away? So the government, um, every government department has a memorandum of understanding or an agreement with LAC about what they will maintain as archival records and what they'll transfer to LAC. So I think that that's with the idea that we don't have to deaccession any material from a government department. And then private fall, of course, are acquired and dealt with on an individual level based on the material and that's the individual organization that's sharing the information. But again, a custodial archivist would be able to speak much better to that. <laughs> and there is on the website, there is a little bit uh, that gives some detail about um, the private phone. And if people, if Canadians have something that they think is of note or would be worth preserving, there is an explanation of what types of things are accepted and how to go about finding out if what you have would be uh, accepted to be mm-hmm. preserved. Of interest to LAC. Uh, this also applies to published items. So any books that, books or other published items that may be in people's possession. So if I have a question and I want to go to reference services, um, what should I know about the kind of work that you do? And is there anything I should do before the visit or are there options instead of coming in to visit? Certainly. I would always encourage any researcher who's thinking about coming on site, especially from out of town, to call ahead email us, let us know when you're coming, what you're intending to do. And that helps us triage your request as well. If you say you're coming in a week, we'll probably offer you a phone appointment and suggest that you speak with an archivist or a librarian right away to make the most of your visit. And that's what I try to help people do is make the most of the time that they're planning to spend at the archives. And it may be that we identify material that's of interest to you that's available online which is why it's important to plan ahead because that could be very frustrating for someone to get to Ottawa and realize they could have done their research from home. Alternatively, sometimes it takes several weeks to get material ready for researchers, depending on restrictions, which material might be being used by other researchers. There's lots of different reasons. There was the ice storm last week. The truck wasn't able to get to the building. So, you know, the the delivery truck with our archival material So it's always good to plan ahead because you never know what's going to happen, like if the delivery truck can't get here during freezing rain. And so it's always good to plan your visit a couple days ahead at least, if not more. I guess essentially just plan ahead. It's never too early to call us and say you're thinking of coming so we can help give you some some tips and tricks in your planning process. Um, And even if you're coming tomorrow, still feel free to give us a call and we'll do whatever we can to help you. But know that we may not be able to do everything that you'd like to do. So Rebecca, what kind of requests are uh, like most common from, I guess, everyday people coming in? So I find that um, one of the most popular things is genealogy. And we have our genealogy team upstairs dealing with requests about the census, immigration, passenger lists, those kinds of um, information, things that people can use to build family trees, learn about when their families came to Canada. I would say that a lot of the requests that we get in reference services are still related to genealogy, but it's because people want to know more about the context in which their families lived and worked here in Canada. And even though it may not always seem genealogy related, when you start to speak with a researcher about their work, it's often quite related to their family. So why are they looking for early maps of Ottawa? 
because they want to know exactly where their family lived. Why are they looking for records about a battalion that served in the war? Because their grandfather or their uncle was in that battalion. So it may not always seem related at the at the first first glance, but I think that that's really neat because it it shows how we're all connected too. Because a lot of people's grandfathers served in that one battalion. A lot of people's ancestors lived in early Bytown, for example. People are very interested in what's around them, their local post office, their local train station, local buildings around them that the federal government had a role in building or staffing. So when people do um, have requests, what would you say is the demographic, I guess? Is it usually researchers in the sense that they're maybe older or they're academics? Do you ever get you know high school students doing projects or is it mostly professional researchers? I would say that the age does trend upwards. We do have the occasional high school student or undergraduate student more often visiting LAC. Most high school students, their first stop would be their local library, which can offer them a lot of the same published sources, maybe not the archival side. I would have loved as a high school student to be allowed to go to the archives and do a project, but I'm just not sure how many of them are are doing that these days. A lot of retired Canadians and I mean people from around the world too finally have time for that research project that's been bugging them for years and that they want to get into. So, And among um, the requests that you get, um, so far it's been researchers, like individuals. Do you institutions ever approach LAC? Certainly, yes. So um, they don't always come directly to reference services because, of course, they, not everyone knows about us. So sometimes the questions come to us from various other places in our institution, like media relations, for example. Um, but we work quite often with other government departments, maybe not at their highest level, but with you know our peers, really, our colleagues, our other public servants who are doing projects about their own department's history or the building they work in, the history of that. So it can be really interesting in that sense, too, to learn more about the public service that we're part of. What, what are some of your most memorable requests? That's an excellent question. Um, I, the RCMP video that I mentioned earlier certainly stuck with me um, to watch that. So I sat there with the, the headphones on in our audiovisual space and I was watching the video and, you know, the, the sound quality wasn't fantastic, but it just, it kind of brought me to life in this normally very quiet and dark space and I was just so happy listening to that music. And then when I took them off, I thought, oh, is not everybody like listening to this music? Because it's not just filled the room. Um, that really stuck with me for a long time. And it's more than a year, I think, since I worked on that. And it's still with me. So I would say that's one of my more memorable recent requests. But then there's also memorable researchers. We work with some of the same people over and over, depending on their topic, depending on the nature of their work. And that's something else that makes our work really special is the relationships that we get to develop with these people. So in the example that you gave about the Mountie video, for you, when you're looking for them, are all the reels of film digitized now? Or do you, are you like a real expert now where you hook it up to the machine? And So I'm a VHS expert. <laughs> Ooh. I'm practicing that for a good 30 years. <laughs> so, um, so in the case of this video, I don't remember what the original format of the film was. Likely it was on a reel, but a consultation copy was created on a VHS. So we don't watch the material on the original format because, well, we don't necessarily have the means to do that, the physical means to do that, and also for the preservation of the original item. 
So I watched it on VHS. Some are also on DVD now, of course, too. And then, yes, some items are digitized. So we have a YouTube channel that, you know, anyone could check out and see some digitized footage, which is also great for preservation because then we don't need to touch the original again. Yeah, that's what I was wondering for, from a conservation point of view. So, Rebecca, um, is there anything exciting that's happened recently at 395 Wellington? So lots of exciting things are going on at our building. Um, it's usually pretty quiet, but if you look, you'll, you'll find the excitement. <laughs> so right when you walk in the front door, we have a brand new interactive touchscreen that provides high-level institutional and physical orientation to the building. So that's really neat, the result of a staff-led project, and we're very proud to have it there. And it's great to have this pilot project of using such new interactive technology in our building. We also have a brand new exhibit called Premiere, and it's all about new acquisitions at Library and Archives Canada. So that will be there till December 3rd. There's always lots of exciting things going upstairs on the third floor with the consultation. I mean, it's very quiet, but the researchers are just, that's where they are. That's where they're working and they're happy and excited to be there. And we also have our DigiLab, so also a fairly new space at LAC. It's a maker space. We have some really high quality scanner, different scanning equipment that you can use to scan archival material. And it's a crowdsourcing project in the sense that you can leave with a digital copy of the item. And then you also leave a copy for LAC and helps to enhance our, our access to our holdings and to share those digital images with, with the public. One of the really cool scanners that we have in the DigiLab, it, it's specific for ledgers or bound volumes. And so it will actually adjust. There's two sides to the scanner um, in the base where you place the document and it will adjust to keep the top image flat. And so as the book, as you turn the pages in the book, it doesn't become lopsided. Mm. I guess this discussion about sort of the digital app and how that works takes us into our next question, which is um, how um, is LAC working to make Canada's history uh, more accessible? So there's several digitization initiatives that are ongoing, which is fantastic. Um, I'm not part of them specifically, so I can't speak to each individual project, but there's, um, there's material that's being digitized all the time, not only through the DigiLab, but also through, um, there's a push to, to digitize and to make available and accessible in material that's related to the Indigenous peoples. And a lot of that includes digitizing it to make it accessible to everyone from a computer. And then, of course, there's other projects that aren't necessarily specifically digital, but, I mean, our block review projects to, to review and make accessible in terms of opening restricted documents that's huge too. I don't think it gets the, the praise it, it, it should, but that's fantastic as well, opening hundreds of thousands of millions of pages. Maybe well, just millions of pages. Why are documents restricted? Why can't everyone see everything? Excellent question. So when documents come to LAC, either from a private donor or from a government department, they come with access restrictions. It's fantastic when they're open, when they come to us. For excellent reasons, private donors often place some restrictions on the material, especially if they're still living. Personal information, personal diaries, also things that could still be important to national security, depending on who that individual was. So the same thing goes for government documents. There is a balance, I think, between asking a government department to keep things until they're open 
And then we risk the integrity of the document as well. The longer it's sitting in a department's basement, the longer it's susceptible to flood or damage, I think. Right. I always encourage researchers that I'm working with to ask for access to any document that they want to ask access to. I don't think that something that says it's restricted should keep anyone from at least asking because it will be reviewed and then you will be allowed access or not. And there are multiple channels to go through to get that. Or you might have limited access, which still might answer the question the researcher is looking for without, you know, um, giving away the integrity of why it's being restricted in the first place. Of course. Yeah. What's the longest something could be restricted? Or is there no real limit? Yeah, that's I was just wondering, like... If documents no longer pertain to someone in life, it, does it just kind of then it becomes free game? Or so there are there are especially with privacy restrictions, there are very specific rules about um, after the death uh, the during the life of an individual, and if we don't know the date of death, you apply about a hundred year rule. Um, so, for example, that's why they're um, able to open and digitize all of the. Canadian Expeditionary Force CEF files from the First World War because of reasonable presumption of death of all of these individuals because we're sharing quite a bit of personal information about these people. And I, I think most Canadians would not like for their social insurance number or their address to be accidentally <laughs> opened and shared. History. Precisely, precisely. LAC records include a lot of personal information and it's really important to protect that on behalf of Canadians. Mm. And what about uh, government institutions? You said departments are sending things to you too. Do those, is government department material put under similar restrictions? Yes. Like it will either be restricted or open. Okay. Is that what you meant? Uh, what I'm getting at is how long could something from a government government department be <laughs> put under restriction? I suppose if the privacy rule would apply, it could be that 100 years. But I, I imagine that 100 years ago or even 20 years ago, these kind of reviews were done quite differently than they are today, just with the general availability of information in today's day of the internet and etc. So who knows where it will be in 10 or 20 years and how how that will change. But as far as I know, there is no fixed um, 30-year rule, as you might hear about in other countries. But just ask for the document. <laughs> See what they say. <laughs> and you mentioned, um, you know, the longer document is kind of out of LAC, it's susceptible to floods and things like that. So obviously LAC has a huge um, focus on conservation of documents and objects. So I'm just kind of wondering if you could kind of explain what that means to people who might not be familiar. Definitely. So, you know, there's our mandate is three-pronged. We can't provide access to things that we haven't taken care of Mm -hmm. and conserved. And so it's a really important part of the process. And that begins right when documents are deemed archival and they're coming to us and so making sure they're in the proper type of box like an acid-free box for example for photographs making sure that negatives uh, like photographic negatives for those of you who know what those are (laughs) are are properly stored for example nitrate negatives for for older older photographs need to be stored in a different facility even they're not even at our main preservation center Um, different temperature controls different vaults, different types of rooms and spaces. And that's just the physical things that we do. But then there's also ongoing preservation of the materials themselves. So rebinding of books, for example, and of other different types of documents and 
we as reference archivists and I mean researchers generally as well can flag issues with documents and preservation can address them. I'm interested too to see um, as archives become more digital, um, dealing with the preservation of digital files because bit rot is a real thing. Like digital files do eventually start to decay in different systems. So it, I think that's going to be really cool to see that evolution, like the physical and then moving into this kind of like ethereal digital. And we still have to have a way to provide access as right. well, right? So it's not just, um, that's like the, the flip scenario. Like we, we, you know, we can do everything we can to take care of them. But like if someone has needs a CD-ROM, there's people who don't even have CD drives yeah. in their computers anymore. Right. So it's actually um, interesting to talk about the idea of the preservation centers because that's something else that Canadians are actually able to access. The public can actually go in and book tours to be able to access this beautiful preservation facility. Uh, they're actually building a second one because of the success of the first one, and they're built to withstand hundreds of years so that they will actually be able to preserve for a long time all of the different documents within and the different archival sources. Um, so that's something that's available to Canadians, and you can always also visit 395 Wellington to have an appointment. You can also book a phone appointment or you can send in a written request. All of that is on the Library and Archives Canada website. There's even like a nice button that says, ask us a question. And it tells you all the ways you can do that. Um, so those are just some things that you can notice. And if you're in the Ottawa area, definitely visit 395 Wellington, consider booking a tour, or uh, you can even drop in during doors open, which is happening in June. So lots of ways that you can access Library and Archives Canada and discover the history of Canada on your own. Notice History is a no history podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins, with audio mixing by myself and Emily Cuggy. For more information about the topics we covered, check out our blog at knowhistory.ca slash podcast, or you can check us out on social media at Notice History. If you like this show, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.